Thanks, Jennifer, for leading and your prayers. And uh, thank you all for your prayers. They really matter. God. Uh, we're in a sermon series called um, Kingdom Habits of the Heart, and we're just exploring the Beatitudes of Jesus up until the beginning of Advent. And we've been following them sequentially. But I am going to jump down to the second to the last Beatitude because I thought it was uh, pertinent to our election. In some ways, um, well, in many ways, the, this Beatitude of being peacemakers is a, is a, summary, uh, a summation of all the ones that come ahead of it. Um, so we'll circle back in the, in the following weeks and finish them. But um, our scripture this morning is the same. Uh, the whole, uh, read all of the, the Beatitudes. You can find it in page nine of your worship folder. Hear God's word to us from Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, be with us this morning. Uh, give us a vision and a sense practically of what it means to be peacemakers during this season. I want to add my prayers to many of the prayers that were spoken and uttered. We pray for this uh, election season in the next week or however long it takes. We pray for peace. We pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity as your people to know what our calling is in this time. We pray for the continu um, continued um, patience and endurance and wisdom um, as we struggle with this virus. We pray, I, I want to lift up schools in particular, um, school teachers who have such a hard job right now, and children who are trying to learn in difficult circumstances. In a special way, Lord, I want to lift them up and ask that you bless them and give them strength and courage and endurance both to kids, but also especially to school teachers who are working so hard right now. Be with us and meet us in your word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Brothers and sisters, on Tuesday, we have a national election in which Americans will vote for their next president. 
I know many of you have already voted. And I want you to know that in Jesus Christ, you are free to vote for whomever you like. You are free to vote for Donald Trump. You are free to vote for Joe Biden. You are free to vote for none of the above. You are free to vote at all. Now in saying this, <clears throat> I'm not saying that there's not really important consequences. I'm not saying that there's moral equivalency between the candidates or that the future of America is very different depending on who gets elected. But what I am saying is this, is that voting for one candidate as opposed to another is not going to make you more Christian or less Christian, more moral or less moral, more enlightened or less enlightened. There is no obviously Christian way to vote. Not this election, I would argue, actually not really in, in any election. I know many would disagree with me on that point. That's a different sermon. Many of you have come to very different conclusions based upon your own life experiences and your Christian convictions about uh, who is the better candidate or what is the better party. And I just want you to keep in mind that, that, um, that there are many authentically Christian people in this church and across America who will vote differently from the way that you vote. And they will not cease to be your brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Again, I'm not saying that this election isn't a big deal and there's not a lot at stake or that you shouldn't vote or you shouldn't care or be engaged in politics. But I am saying this, that no matter what the outcome of this election, whether your candidate wins or loses, your calling afterwards and really now is the same. It is not to be a partisan, but to be a peacemaker. No matter who wins this election, you are called to be a peacemaker, not a partisan. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. You cannot be a peacemaker and a partisan. These are mutually exclusive categories. Now, by partisan, I don't necessarily mean that you're registered with one party or another, or that even, you know, you, perhaps you work in politics. Or that you have a general orientation which makes you think about, you know, politics in a certain way. That's not what I mean by being a partisan. By partisan, I mean someone who lets their political commitments and their orientation politically and culturally to become the filter and the lens through which they interpret and practice their Christian faith. And I don't think many of us would disagree with this definition of partisanship. Uh, nobody is going to say, no, no, I think we should let our American political commitments precede our Christian commitments. However, none of us can admit that this is a problem for me. None of us seem to be able to recognize partisanship in ourselves. We just see it in others. We see the partisan speck in our brother or sister's eye, but we don't see the partisan log in our own. And so if you're a conservative-leaning person, 
you see very obvious and clear partisanship in people who are more left-leaning and progressive. And if you are a progressive person, uh, you see obvious, blatant partisanship in those who are more conservative-leaning. Consider this, brothers and sisters, you're more partisan than you think, and I include myself in this. You're more partisan than you think you are. It's really impossible not to be, given that we live in this polarized American culture. Unless you're completely cut off from the outside world, you're being shaped and formed in this political environment. And the trend in the church mirrors the trends in our culture, which is that we increasingly live in political and cultural silos. We move to certain neighborhoods, we gravitate towards certain things, in which we're not really confronted, rarely, to think and get along with people who are really different from ourselves. And so we become more tribal and polarized and partisan. But again, Jesus says, no, I want you to be peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? That's what I want to explore with you this morning. Of all the Beatitudes, this one stands out unique in, in, in that it is, it's like an office, a peacemaker. It's an office. It is an office that we are called to hold as kingdom people of God. The other um, you know, Beatitudes describe character traits and ways that we respond to things in the world and the way that we respond to God, but peacemaking, it's, it's like it's a job description. And so this morning I want to explore with you uh, maybe what, what the job description of being a peacemaker is. And I want to highlight three things about what it means to be a peacemaker. Um, to be a peacemaker is to be a visionary. To be a peacemaker is to be a builder. And to be a peacemaker is to be a mediator. To be a peacemaker is to be a visionary. Peacemaking begins with how we see the world. It proceeds from a vision of the world. To be a peacemaker, you have to, have, you have to see things rightly. You have to have a proper vision of things. Now remember that I've spoken about the ways in which these Beatitudes really build on one another and how they interact in causal ways with one another. The Beatitude that immediately precedes this one is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. In a couple weeks, we'll circle back and explore more fully what it means to have a pure heart. But for now, I want to just draw your attention um, to this idea of seeing, that we see God. Because peacemaking is grounded in a vision of God. You have to see God in order to envision peace. And receiving a vision from God was always, first and foremost, a part of what it meant to be a prophet in the Bible. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, they all have visions of God. Visions that frame their ministry that they live out of and which they preach out of and do their pro prophetic activity. And they're really visions of shalom or peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. To be a peacemaker, we must be able to envision what peace looks like. And in the Bible, peace is not just the cessation of conflict. That's a very sort of baseline, you know. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. Peace and shalom in the biblical world is what you heard in our, in our reading. It's the flourishing of all things and right relationship before God 
before other humans and before the land. It is a kind of righteous and just interconnectedness of all things with one another that creates flourishing and fruitfulness and bounty. Um, Let me read you a few words from Ezekiel's prophecy, which is a a vision of shalom. And it's helpful to to know that um, God has been speaking to Israel as sheep, their sheep. And so this is what God says through Ezekiel, the prophet. He says, I will make with them a covenant of shalom, of peace, and I will banish the wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them, and I will... And I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their seasons, and they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hands of those who have enslaved them and oppressed them. Shalom in the Bible is always more than just the absence of conflict. It is the flourishing of all things as they relate to one another in righteousness and justice. So to be a peacemaker is to have a vision of what this flourishing looks like at a specific time and in a specific place. And this is central to our prophetic calling as the church. To be the church is to imagine the world different than it is. It is to imagine the world differently. And you cannot live differently in the world if you cannot um, imagine the world differently than it currently is. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, an an Old Testament scholar, has a book on the prophetic imagination and prophetic ministry, and he says this. I think it's a nice summary of what that prophetic call is. He says, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture and nourish and evoke a consciousness and a perception that is alternative to the consciousness and the perception of the dominant culture around us. It is, it is it's a, an alternative imagination. It's a prophetic imagination that, that see, when it looks at the world, it sees what God's desires are, what God's designs are, what God's direction is. It is very different from a partisan imagination in the church. A partisan imagination in the church is simply a mirroring of the world to itself, but with religious justifications and pious catchphrases attached to it. But a prophetic imagination seeks to see God, and because it does see God, it can imagine a very different world than the one that exists, and a very different future, and a different way of being in the world. Now again, we don't have the time this morning to positively explore what it means to cultivate a prophetic imagination. I'll come back to that in a couple weeks. But I can tell you how not to do it. You will not get a prophetic imagination through listening to conservative talk radio. You will not get a prophetic imagination through listening to NPR. You will not get a prophetic imagination through spending all your time on Facebook and Twitter by watching Fox News or CNN or reading the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Even on their very best days, all of these media platforms simply reinforce 
all of our tribal and partisan instincts. To be a peacemaker requires something wholly different, a prophetic imagination, which is a capacity to envision and to see God in the world and what he is bringing about in Jesus Christ. So, to be a peacemaker is to be a visionary, but second, to be a peacemaker is to be a builder. To be a peacemaker is to be a builder. It is to be a person that is devoted to the task of building, not tearing down. Weaving things together, not ripping things apart. Peacemaking is a constructive task, not a destructive one. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons and daughters of God. Now, how do we arrive at this idea of building? It's actually the connection between uh, the two parts of the beatitude, between being peacemakers and being sons and daughters of God. And what Paul or what Jesus is doing here is he is alluding back to um, a conversation that King David has with his son Solomon. A conversation in which David instructs him of something that God said to him. If you remember, David hands and transfers power from uh, David to his son Solomon. You'll remember that David was a great warrior whose life was filled with much fighting and battle against the surrounding nations and even within the nation of Israel. And at the end of his life, as he's ready to hand over the reins to his son Solomon, whose name means peace, Solomon, peace. He says this to his son. He says, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and you have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, behold, a son shall be born to you This is God speaking to David. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all the surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. And he shall build a house for my name. And he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever." That's from Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 22. The reign of Solomon, of course, is known in the history of Israel as the pinnacle, as the peak, the time of greatest peace, and it was a time of great building. Solomon built the temple. Solomon built royal palaces. There were building projects happening all over Israel. Visitors and nations were coming from around the world in order to behold these Behold the wisdom and the prosperity of Solomon. Israel reached, ancient Israel reached its highest peak of cultural and architectural achievement and building uh, under the reign of Solomon. But unfortunately, as you know the story, this kingdom of peace could not last. In fact, Solomon sowed many of the seeds of its own destruction by his own uh, idolatry. But these words that God spoke to David were not just words about Solomon. They actually foreshadowed the coming of his own son, the true son of peace, the one and the only one who could bring a lasting peace and rest to the land to establish God's royal throne forever. 
So friends, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons and daughters of God, what he does here is he places us in this royal lineage with David and Solomon. He tells us that to share in his royal kingly office as peacemakers is to be builders. To be a Christian is to share in Jesus' royal office as king. And one of the ways that we show ourselves his royal descendants is that we become builders. And this is what it means to be sons and daughters of peace. And the task of peacemaking is a task of building something in the world. See, the reality is that it takes a lot more effort to build something than to destroy something. A couple winters ago, I took my son and the neighborhood boys uh, sledding at the park across the street. And on the hill, one of the hills close to where we were sledding, there was a 10-foot snowman that somebody had built. It probably took two or three people to even put those, the big things on there. And as the boys came past the snowman, their instinct was to jump on it and begin to destroy it. And I got mad. I was like, guys, what are you doing? You didn't build this. It's always easier to destroy something than it is to create something. Probably took an hour or more to make that snowman, but they could ruin it in like five minutes. And this is true of everything. It always takes a lot more time to really build something than to tear something down. Anything worthwhile takes a lifetime to build, but it only takes (laughs) some careless words or a few thoughtless actions to destroy something that it took a lifetime to build. Creating is always harder than critiquing. But again, the partisan imagination is more about destroying and critiquing than it is creating and building. It is the call to drain the swamp, right? Or to tear down the institutions of oppression. These, again, are people who say these things often fancy themselves to be prophets, as this is part of their prophetic task. But you never see a prophet in the Bible tearing or destroying anything down. There is an appropriate role for prophetic critique and for institutional reform. That's part of what it means to be a peacemaker. To be a peacemaker is not to be a pushover. To be a peacemaker is not to be an appeaser, an appeaser of injustice. But prophetic critique of the peacemaker comes most clearly through what he or she builds rather than what she calls out as unjust. The partisan imagination might train us in the art of deconstruction, but it does not show us how to build things, how to create things, how to nurture shalom in the world. Brothers and sisters, it's very easy, I think, for us, from our different locations politically, to get upset and angry and critique and point out all the wrongs and the obvious wrongs and injustice. But all the partisan imagination can do is stand on the sides and critique. It can't build. And I love that word in the English, which is peacemaker. It's the compound. You have to make something. Peace is something you have to make. And so I asked all of us this morning, what building projects are you involved in? What institutions, what relationships, what social commitments and public works have you devoted your life to? That's what it means to be a peacemaker, to be a builder. Now, if you're somebody who's ever been involved in uh, building something, whether it's an actual building or an institution or even a family, what you know, though, 
is that um, there are a lot of different people that need to be involved that have very different opinions and different perspectives that need to be held together. If you're a general contractor, which I have a great deal of respect for, you're always trying to coordinate people to show up in order to complete the project. And, you know, it's actually a great feat. And that's part of um, being a general contractor. I think you have to be part a mediator. To be a to be a mediator. A mediator is a person that stands in the middle. And she is, in a sense, a go-between between opposing parties. She seeks mutual understanding and insight without rendering premature judgment. See, again, a partisan can't stand in the middle. To be a partisan, by, I mean, the very definition of a partisan is you stand to the side, to the either left or to the right. But you don't stand in the middle. And here, I'm not trying to make an argument for being moderates or anything. Don't, don't interpret me in, a, in our American political sense of this. But the tendency of the partisan imagination is to, is to render summary judgments upon people without really interacting with them. But a peacemaker, a, a peacemaker enters into the middle, and the middle is a conflict zone. It's a conflict zone. And what they try to do is they, they try to hold everybody together. They try to, to get people interacting and talking and understanding one another, communicating one another, staying connected with one another. And the way that they do this is not by specific techniques of listening, and these are really important. Those, there are a lot of great techniques for being a mediator. But it's by virtue of their person and their character that they're able to hold together diverse perspectives and parties. That's what, a per, that's what a mediator does. They give people the benefit of the doubt. But I think one of the biggest things that a mediator really does is they create social trust. They create social trust. They, and where social trust has been damaged or, or lost, they seek to repair it. I stumbled um, upon a really beautiful example of peacemaking recently. In the person of Katrina Thompson, and it's Katrina with a C, um, Thompson is a Christian. And she's a black woman, mother of teenage boys, and she has been the chief of police uh, of the Winston-Salem Police Department in North Carolina since 2017. And when all of the protests and riots broke out this summer in response to George Floyd's death, um, she exercised a, a really unique and courageous leadership. And I'm, I'm just going to quote you some lines from, from the article that I read, which was a profile of her. When she first began to engage the, the city on this issue, it says, unarmed and dressed in a Navy polo shirt, Katrina Thompson spoke for about seven minutes before a large group of people without notes or talking points until her voice tightened and her eyes welled with tears. And she expressed her outrage over the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis eight days earlier, and she committed to the racially diverse crowd of young people that she wanted a police force that all of Winston-Salem's citizens could be proud of. In quote, she says, resents and despises a bad officer is a good officer. Thompson, 52, said, these men and women that are here, that you see around here, 
staff on the outskirts of the group, most of them aren't even on duty. They're here because they love this job, they love this city, and they love you. And at the time around the country, including very nearby cities in North Carolina, peaceful protests were devolving into fiery chaos and looting and destruction of property. And Chief Thompson made a pledge to the city of Winston-Salem. And she said, as long as the demonstrators do not turn violent or destructive, they would have her department's full support. I want to show the rest of America that our voices can and will be heard, she said, and that can be done without tearing our city apart. And what happened through the course of the summer was that there were protests and it got very, very tense at times, but there was no destruction of property. There were very few arrests until towards the end. And what you, as you read the story about this woman, she had done so much leading up to this and she was engaging both sides and she had many enemies on both sides. But she stood in that place and she was trying to create peace. She was trying to create a space as a mediator. And I think the most remarkable thing as you hear this story is the kind, and you think about the kind of virtue and character and empathy and holiness that it would have taken to do what she did because very few were able to do it. To be a mediator, to be a peacemaker is not to be a neutral party. To be a mediator is to be a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and justice. It is to embody it in your own life. To be a peacemaker is to be poor in spirit, which means that, that we're not defensive when our own faults and mistakes are pointed out to us. To be a peacemaker is to mourn because you see the injustice of the world and you see the injustice in your own life. To be a peacemaker is to be meek. It's to, be, to, know, that, to have mastered anger in your own heart so it doesn't come out on others so that you're not mastered by it, so that you don't use your power to protect yourself at the expense of others. To be a peacemaker is to be merciful because you see that you've received mercy and it's important sometimes to cut people some slack because you've been cut a lot of slack in your own life. To be a peacemaker is not to be a person that quickly jumps to judgment because you know that there's a lot of things in your own lives, things that in your own eye that you don't see right. To be a peacemaker is to treat others the way you want to be treated, which is with dignity and respect, to be given the benefit of the doubt. And perhaps most scandalously, to be a peacemaker is to, to learn to love your enemies, even those who have spoken ill of you and have harmed you and to extend forgiveness and mercy because you have received it from God. Now, the way this plays out, of course, is very messy. It's very messy. And you won't be a popular person. And it's significant that after this beatitude, the very last beatitude Jesus says is, blessed are those who are persecuted. And there's two beatitudes about it. It's the longest reflection. That if you actually try to be a peacemaker, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be vilified. People are not going to like you. They're going to see you as the very opposite of than that of a peacemaker. But again, here we again, back to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the true mediator, as Paul says, between God and man. Jesus himself was the ultimate embodiment of the mediator. 
He stood between us and God. And again, there was no neutral party here. It was very clearly who was in the wrong. It was us. And yes, Jesus stepped in in our very humanity to represent us before God. And what Paul says here, he describes Jesus' ministry of peace this way. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new human being in the place of the two, and so making peace. That he might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came near and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Amen. Lord, we ask that you help us to be peacemakers in this season of our life, especially, as many of us are nervous about the weeks to come and what may or may not happen. Give us a vision of peace, Lord. Give us a vision of your peace and confidence that uh, you are God and you are guiding our nation and you're guiding our lives and that you, Lord, will deliver, and that you have made peace for us in Jesus Christ, and you have killed the hostility that kept us from you, and the hostility that keeps us from one another. And so we ask, Lord, that you give us an extra measure of your grace in this season. I'll give you thanks and praise. In the name of the Son of Peace, we pray. Amen.